Welcome to Lifeology. I am James Miller, your host and a licensed psychotherapist. I'm looking forward to spending this time with you as we learn some pretty amazing life lessons. Let's get started. I have a great show for you today. I'll teach you how your thoughts create your habits. I'll also be interviewing Emmy award-winning journalist and best-selling author, Elizabeth Vargas. Elizabeth shares how she grew up with anxiety and how she eventually turned to alcohol for a release from her painful reality. The now A&E network reporter reveals how she found herself living in denial about the extent of her addiction and how she kept her dependency a secret for so long. If you are struggling with alcohol, you are not alone. Visit joinmonument.com to find the online support you need. Thank you so much for listening to Lifeology. I would love to connect with you. Be sure to follow me on all social media platforms under the name James Miller Lifeology, except for Twitter, which is James M. Lifeology. I am also very active on Instagram and create many videos with quick tips and tools that you can immediately implement. Be sure to say hello and follow me there. How your thoughts create your habits. In psychology, we teach that whatever you perceive to be true, in other words, what you're thinking about determines what you feel. Your feelings then tell your body how to respond, either that's through the chemicals that's released in your brain or the behaviors that you demonstrate. For example, if you feel like you're in danger, your body will respond with cortisol and it will move the norepinephrine and all different types of chemicals in your body to help you prepare if you're going to run, flee, or freeze. Or somebody says something really kind to you. You then have thoughts of gratitude. You have feelings of love and you respond with some form of affection. Over time, when we think about things the same way over and over again, our body automatically goes on autopilot. If I believe something for so long, my thoughts automatically create that emotion. Let's say it's anger or sadness or depression or anxiety. And then our body automatically responds to how we've conditioned ourselves to feel about those thoughts. And over time, a behavior becomes repetitive, and the more repetitive it becomes, then it turns into a habit. Research states that on average, a person has to do something 66 times for it to stick as a habit. So when we think about our life, if we have historically responded to the same way over and over again, we don't even have to think about it. We automatically will do it. And once again, that can be how we respond to danger, to feeling rejected, to feeling lonely, to feeling isolated, to feeling less than. And over time, as our body creates the unhealthy habits to deal with those thoughts and emotions, then that creates a problem all on its own. When we experience something, it's so important to slow down and ask yourself, what are my thoughts about this? When we slow down and really listen to those thoughts, sometimes they're illogical. And we think, well, why would I think that? That doesn't make sense. And unfortunately, when we've thought something over and over again, we don't check it within ourselves to see if there's any logic behind it. And then the more irrational or illogical those thoughts are, the more disproportionate the emotional response is going to be. And then the more disproportionate that response is, that's then going to create an overreaction of some sort. In other words, your behaviors will be disproportionate to really what's happening. And that's how we create a negative interpersonal relationship with someone because it's disproportionate. And that's how we're then known as the angry person or the oppositional person or this type of person or that type of person or the person that does this behavior or that behavior. Those unhealthy responses become the label that we're then given. Anytime we want to change a habit, we need to prepare for when that habit's going to happen. If you struggle with overeating and you know driving by your favorite fast food place is going to be a trigger for you, then obviously you have to prepare yourself for that. 
If you're someone that continually argues with a coworker, how do you prepare yourself for what you're going to say before you interact with that person? Everything we do can be preventative, but we have to slow down and recognize the belief we've created about that situation, how our emotions respond, and then what we do with that. The more introspection you have about any situation, the more you'll be able to decouple that habit. A quick little tip to help you recognize if you're about to engage in an unhealthy response or an unhealthy pattern is to be mindful of the spike of emotion you feel in a particular moment. For example, if I'm feeling a certain way and somebody cuts me off in traffic and all of a sudden I have this feeling of rage, that is an indication that my perception about what just happened is probably disproportionate to the event. And that's always a really good rule of thumb because if we don't pay attention to that spike of emotion, our body will automatically go on autopilot and engage in a behavior that is not healthy for us. Because situations happen so fast, we often don't have the time to reflect on what we thought about, but we do recognize emotion. And when that emotion becomes greater than what the situation is, that is a good indication for you to create that little time buffer to recognize that you're about to overreact. And when you can create that little buffer, then it allows you to choose a different response. And that's how you decouple your go-to response about any situation is because now you've recognized the pattern of how you create unhealthy habits for yourself. And the more often you recognize that spike of emotion, create a different response, you will then create healthier habits for yourself. I have a wonderful interview today with Elizabeth Vargas. She shares with you her struggle with anxiety and alcoholism, and she gives you wonderful tools and techniques that you too can implement. So stay tuned. My guest today is Emmy award-winning journalist and best-selling author, Elizabeth Vargas. She's traveled the world covering breaking news stories and in-depth investigations. She has co-hosted the hit show, 2020, and previously served as co-anchor of World News Tonight, anchor of World News Tonight Sunday, news anchor and co-host on Good Morning America, and co-anchor for Primetime Monday and Thursday. Welcome to my show, Elizabeth. Thank you. It's great to be with you. I am so honored that you are a guest on my show today. We had a great conversation in the pre-call, so I can't wait to hear more about all the amazing things that you've done. I'd also asked you, how is it for you when you hear people read your accolades? Because you've done so many things. Well, you know, I look back on that and it's like, oh yeah, whatever. I mean, if you were to ask me to go back and look at what, you know, what the high points of my life were, they they aren't the career moments that, you Mm -hmm. know, the promotions don't get me wrong. Um, you know, I have moments during my career that are, you know, indelibly part of my memory. I can still yeah. smell what it, the air smelled like in, in Iraq and feel, you know, how hu- the humidity wrapped my body like a wet blanket when I was in the jungles in Cambodia, uh, doing a story on baby trafficking. Um, so oh I, gosh, I have wow. lots of those very, you sure. know, indelible memories but you know the high points of my life or the days i gave birth to my two children or um you know just being sober and present in my life every day uh-huh. today i mean yeah. it's it's funny you really it's true when they say you know on your deathbed you don't wish you spent more time in the office uh-huh. you know because it's all distilled what's really important is right there in front of you and um i do feel like i have a good perspective yeah uh, on what's really important. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting point because I, like you have so many labels. For example, I am a radio host. I'm a psychotherapist. I'm a composer. I'm this, I'm that. And in that, sometimes we get lost in those roles as opposed to who Mm -hmm. we truly are. You strip that away and this is who I am. So I think that's what you're saying as well is you've done so many amazing things, but at the end of the day, this is who you are. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really beautiful takeaway for all of us is, is to remember that life events are not who we are unless we want them to be. We define who right. we are. Good and bad, by the way. Mm-hmm. Because Certainly. I think we and others have a tendency to define people by bad events. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, oh, that happened, or you did that, mm-hmm. and you're this as a result. That's and, a label, sure. Yeah. I know when you were younger, and I guess pretty much your whole life, have struggled with anxiety. Could you I tell did. us more about that? Oh my gosh, uh, my earliest memory in my entire life was when I was three years old. I had, actually, I remembered something traumatic when I was two. I broke my leg and I remember oh them sawing the cost, cast off. And wow. I have a snapshot memory uh, of, be, of the ab- abject terror because I thought they were cutting off my leg. But my earliest memory was a year later in Japan when I was three. And it was one a memory of panic. You know, really? I had the hiccups and I couldn't make them stop. And I was utterly panicked about it like i didn't understand why i couldn't control my body so that if that's not an anxious kid you know i don't know what is yeah exactly um and you know when i was six my dad went away to vietnam for a year and um i had panic attacks every single day that he was away so yeah it's uh i i've struggled with anxiety my entire life i had one therapist who said to me it's astonishing that you didn't try and self-medicate sooner than you yeah, did yeah. because I basically white knuckled my way through childhood and adolescence and didn't start to drink at all really until I was in my 20s. Wow. Well, you know what's so interesting though, Elizabeth, is you had mentioned how when you were six years old and you were so anxious for your dad being in Vietnam and then fast forward years later and now you are in all these war yeah. zones and now in potential danger as well. Have you thought about the correlation of that or any of the parallel process? I think that's really interesting. I, I think what I had at the age of six was, you know, a severe case of, you know, um, attachment disorder. My, you know, sure, I, I, I was yeah. panicked that I, I, had, I was afraid my parents were going to abandon me. I, my panic mm. attacks would happen every morning when my mom would have to leave for work before I went to school. I was in kindergarten and then first grade. Oh, wow. Um, and, you know, I can clearly now as an adult looking back on it and with the help of, uh-huh. you know, a couple therapists, you know, obviously my father was gone and I knew on in, he was in a war zone. We were, you know, uh-huh. in Okinawa, which was a staging base for a lot of the troops going in and out of Vietnam. And, uh, you know, my mom was leaving me every morning, you know, at 7 a.m. and mm-hmm. I would have a panic attack. I wow. could not stop it to save my life. Wow. So, and great, and felt great shame about it. So much shame that, you know, the, what's so extraordinary is that I never spoke to my, to anybody, my mom, my dad, a teacher, no, you know, we moved every year. So, yeah. you know, I didn't know anybody well enough in my life long enough to, for anybody to be able to, to feel safe enough to talk to them. And, you know, military bases are not where people, at least at that point in time, you know, we weren't even helping the vets for coming home from Vietnam mm-hmm, with their yeah, PTSD. Nobody was helping the kids. Mm, that's so sad. So, and you said yeah. you didn't talk to anyone, but they saw you crying, I'm assuming. But did they know that you had coupled shame with that? No, it's so interesting. I asked my mother just a few years ago, I, mm-hmm. you know, like, what did you say to me to try and comfort me every morning during those panic attacks? And she said, I, I didn't say anything. I didn't know how to comfort you. Wow. And I could, you know, I called my sister and I was like, I could not believe that. Yeah. But, you know, I have to remember my mother was 28 years old with mm-hmm. two young children. She was pregnant with my little sister and she had a husband in the, in the, in, in a war where people were dying every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so sure. uh, she had a lot on her plate mm-hmm. and, um, you know, she did the best she could. Uh, it wasn't good enough for me at that point. It certainly sure. didn't. I needed more help than I got mm-hmm. for sure. 
And then the night that she went to go give birth to my sister, I remember having that panic attack and, you know, a labor lady was overwatching us. And I got out of bed and ran to the front door, you know, to again, you know, cling and cry and beg and sob and plead with my mother not to leave me as I did during these panic attacks. And this neighbor lady stopped me and said, what is the matter with you? And in that mm -hmm. moment, I was only six. And in that moment, I just knew like, this is bad. This is something I have oh, to hide. Oh, gosh. And Sorry, after yeah. that, I tried to hide it. You know, mm -hmm. I never, ever told anybody, ever told anybody ever in my life that I was wow. anxious. So having to hide all that and the shame as well, how did that affect your self-esteem during that time? Oh, well, I was tremendously insecure as part of it. That was part of the lovely mm -hmm. part of when I did finally yeah. pick up alcohol, which for me was wine. Um, you know, I, it, I could, the, the raging insecurity could calm down a little bit and go yeah. into a quiet corner someplace. You know, it gave me a little more, you know, I didn't feel so, so much social anxiety. I didn't feel like mm -hmm. I, you know, I always thought I wasn't every, somebody else was always smarter and better and prettier and, you know, fill in the blank or yeah, <laughs> than yeah, I was. Uh -huh. So, um, uh, yeah, I think when you have, when you grow up and spend your entire life hiding something that you believe to be shameful mm -hmm. and weak, um, and you're, you know, you, you're investing everything to keep that a secret and to yeah. try and survive life without it, you know, overwhelming you. I mean, I yeah. sometimes feel like a lot of my childhood and especially childhood, but even adolescence, it was like I was in a swimming pool and you, you're up, the water is just up. It's, you know, and you can just keep your nose and your mouth out of the water and you're, you know, paddling like mad underneath the water to keep your, like, it took all of my energy <laughs> to just uh -huh. be, yeah. yeah, to be and to, and to keep that hidden. Oh, I can't imagine. When you think of the younger version of yourself, the one who's experiencing all that anxiety, and yes, you have a lifetime of opportunity to continue practicing handling anxiety, but when you think back on that younger version of yourself, what would you say to her now? That you're enough, you know, yeah. that you're um, not the only one who feels this way, and you're smart enough, and you're good enough, and yeah. you're enough, you know? Mm -hmm. There's things I, I say to my two kids all the time, which is, you know, mm -hmm work very hard and do your very best and let go of the rest. You know, you can't control yeah, like everything and uh -huh. it will be okay. I think that's all I really wanted all my life was someone to, you mm -hmm. know, say it's going to be okay. Um, yeah. So that's what I would say to my younger self. Mm -hmm. It'll be okay. And now you're able to tell yourself that now. Yes. Uh, you know, but sometimes it's a daily thing. I can, I get spun yeah, up in anxiety and worry. I mean, my God, especially I recently did a talk for this group monument and somebody asked uh -huh. me like, how do I stop feeling anxious when I turn on the news? And I said, for God's sake, we all feel anxious when we turn on the news. <laughs> it's a bad time right now. Right now. <laughs> there's a lot to feel anxious about, you know, there's a, every time, you know, life is like, layered over with is this going to make me sick am i going to make people yeah. i love sick and how am i going to pay my rent you know when am i going to start working yeah. again it is mm -hmm. hard right now and the, yeah multiple levels of her life yeah. you've been affected yeah. i mean it's it's incredibly overwhelming yeah. for so many people very overwhelming and i think you know the first 
step to dealing with that is acknowledging, hey, it's hard and yeah, you're not the only one and you have to have faith that, you know, I'm going to do my very best, as a friend of mine mm-hmm. said, chop wood, carry water you know, do whatever you need to do, you know, boil it down. Like, <laughs> exactly. you know. And I really like that because a person will do the healthy things that they need to do to provide for their family. Yeah. But I think sometimes people get so lost in the, oh my gosh, this is how my life is always going to be. And yes, it is a global pandemic. However, what you're doing today does not mean that's how it's always going to be. So right. sometimes when we take that emotional right. snapshot or that emotional forecast and say, this is how my life is always going to be, just remind yourself, this is just for now. And things will change again in the future. I'd like to transition into your work life. When did you pick up your first drink? I started drinking after I graduated from college and started working in local news. Um, And, you know, it was a bit of a tradition, Mm -hmm. you know, you because, you know, you go in in the morning and the board is empty. You had the shows you've got to fill the shows like, you know, the five o'clock, the six o'clock, the six thirty news, you know, the 10 o'clock news. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's an intensely competitive business between the newsrooms. It's brutally competitive within the newsroom. I mean, it's high pressure. And um, it was sort of a, yeah. a, you know, a tradition that everybody would, you know, yeah. troop down to the local bar after everything was over and have, have a few drinks to unwind. And, mm-hmm. and that's, when I, that's when I first discovered for me what power was of, um, of, a, of a glass of wine. You know, I just felt much less insecure. And all uh, of a sudden I could finally yeah. exhale and relax. And the stress seemed to melt away. Um, of course, what you don't realize is that all the melting away of the stress and the anxiety and the insecurity, you know, that's all just waiting for you when you wake up the next morning. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but yes. um, There's that. that's when I started drinking. And I drank, you know, very much moderately and like mm-hmm. most other people for 20 years. In psychology, we have what's called secondary trauma. Mm -hmm. So secondary trauma is I hear a trauma and now I'm traumatized because I heard it. When you would read the news or be out in the field, did you experience secondary trauma, which in turn then affected the anxiety? It doesn't affect my anxiety in that direct way. But I will tell you, um, because I'm aware of this when it comes to being a mother, um, that, you know, part of my... Listen, I love what I do for a living, and it's mm-hmm. a privilege to do the stories and interviews that I have done over the many decades I've done it, and and I still continue to do it. Um, but as a journalist, you're out there and you see things and experience things firsthand that most people read about in the newspaper yeah, or watch yeah. on news from from a remove from afar, yeah. And, um, there's definitely, and there's a lot we can't show you and don't show you Mm -hmm. because it is so traumatic. Um, and there have been times in my career, um, where, you know, when I worked at ABC news or NBC news, you know, those networks, uh, offered counseling and therapists to correspondents who, for example, covered the Sandy hook elementary school Mm -hmm. shooting with all those, you know, tiny children, you know, killed it. It, it's all, it can be almost too much to bear sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, you, what you're left with is the re- very, very real understanding that bad things can and do happen in this world. Yeah. And, um, and you see them and experience them. And it can be difficult sometimes to process mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. What it does for me 
sadly, that I have to check and watch is feeds that sort of catastrophic thinking because, yeah, you know, um, there isn't this part of my brain that says, well, that can't happen because actually I've seen just about everything happen mm -hmm. and, yeah, you know, sure. and experienced that. And I've been in so many war zones and I've been in the slums in India and seen the way people lived and held, you know, tiny babies who were you know, dying of starvation in my arms. It, it, it can be almost too much. Yeah, because it's so big and there's there's so much to do and I'm only one person, what, what could I do? Well, in that case, I feel, uh, yeah, but you, I help by telling that story. Yeah, that's true. Because that's our fair. stories can spur people to action. The initiative. Um, I'm talking more just about the market leaves on you. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. And how, you know, as an anxious child who grew up always fearing the worst, that my parents would die and be taken from me because of what happened with my dad going away to war. Um, what being a journalist has shown me is that sometimes the worst really does wow. happen and, and I have witnessed it. So it's, it's, um, you know, you have to, that's a different sort of, you have to come to grips with that. Like, okay, yeah. bad things happen. Bad there things happen to good people or who don't deserve it. And, and it really, you know, and therefore, you know, be grateful for this, you know, precious for the gift moment of a life. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. You said that you were able to moderate your drinking for about 20 years. Was there a time when you realized that it was getting out of hand? Oh, well, that there wasn't a one single moment. I wish there were. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I wish I, you know, said, oh, I'm going to fix this. <laughs> but I didn't. <laughs> well, I think that's a really good point. I think a lot of people struggle with that. They yeah. don't realize the severity of what they're dealing with. Well, I, you know, listen, I, um, A, I didn't think I knew anybody else who was an sure. alcoholic because that was completely false. I knew a lot of people who were, you know, struggling with addiction or in recovery. I just didn't, you know, they don't talk about yeah. it, which, um, so I didn't know who they were, which sadly, you know, it would have helped me yeah. maybe in some small way to know that there were other people like me out there. Um, I, I thought very, you know, ridiculously that I was singularly unique. Um, and I just couldn't fathom putting down this crutch, you know. I, I had finally found something that helped me yeah. with my anxiety and my stress. And, and I was using a crutch in this Band-Aid solution rather than dealing with the actual, you know, issue of my anxiety and confronting it head on, which is mm -hmm. what you need to do. You know, turn, yeah. Stop running away from it. It's like you stop running, turn around yeah. and look at it. Study it. Understand it's just a feeling. But, you know, I didn't learn how to do all of that until after I stopped drinking. And it took mm -hmm. me a long time to figure out I had a problem, even though everybody else, you know, from the outside looking in, it was very mm -hmm. obvious. Yeah. Well, that's usually the case. Yeah. <laughs> We're often the last to know. Well, it's just, you know, you're also not, you know, thinking straight. Sure. Yeah, yeah, so, sure. you know. What did you yeah. do to decouple the ritual of drinking? So you said that you would go home after work and then you would drink. If you knew that the nighttime or after work was a slippery slope for you, what mm. did you do to separate that so it wasn't an automatic response to go drink? Oh, I remember early on in my sobriety um, that I would actually, on my way, I would get done from work and think, oh my God, I feel like I want to have a glass of wine tonight. And instead I would go to the movies, you know, on nights I, I didn't yeah. have my kids, I would go to the movies mm -hmm. and get a huge bucket of popcorn. 
And you know what? By the time that movie was over and I'd had my little treat of, you know, an enormous bucket of popcorn, um, <laughs> that it passed. I'm a big believer. Sometimes I went to an evening yoga class. Um, uh-huh. I'm a big believer in breaking that pattern. Like why go home yes. and be miserable and wander around the apartment and fight a craving, change it up, shake it up, go do yes. something. Yeah. And I exactly. tell people to do that. Like I, you know, that's a treat for me. I, I, I miss my movie theaters and my big unhealthy yeah. movie theater popcorn because it's <laughs> yeah exactly. I loved it. but you know elizabeth i think you had a really good point why go back to the place and this could be analogous to life but why go back to the place that hurts you so that can be in your thoughts why go back to your memory that hurts you or that is negative for you as well as why go back to a physical location that you know it's going to cause you distress mm-hmm. or cause harm or pain in your life mm-hmm. going to the movies or going to a yoga class or doing something that gets you out of the house yeah. my gosh why not do that as opposed to going back to a place you know that could potentially be a trigger for you. Right. And I and I tell people in early sobriety that you know, you be gentle to, with yourself. Yeah. Be, you know, do something nice for yourself. Definitely. Go get a you know, if it's not go to a movie, go get a manicure, an evening manicure. Go mm-hmm. get, you know, meet a friend for, you know, a walk in the park. I mean, yeah. it's really important when you're trying to because if you remember, you know, most people who drink destructively aren't drinking to feel good. They're drinking to not feel something not else. Feel, yeah. So um, normal drinkers go out and have a couple glasses of something mm-hmm. at a party or a restaurant to feel good. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to feel bad the next morning. So they sure. stop after a couple yeah. drinks, yeah. you know. I wasn't, I wasn't like that. I was trying not, I was drinking to feel good, but I was also drinking not to feel so anxious, mm-hmm. not to feel so insecure, not to feel so stressed out, not to feel so, you know, certain that I was the one person who hadn't gotten the instruction manual, you know, in this entire universe. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so. Oh, real quickly, before I forget, can you tell us more about Monument, that organization uh, that you mentioned earlier? Sure. It's a, an organization that um, for people who want to curb or cut out alcohol in their lives and maybe one, they offer therapists that, you know, you can meet with, which is fantastic because it's all, I think, you know, online. Yeah, it's all virtual. Um, there's also doctors who are able to help, you know, sometimes medication can help awesome. uh, with people who are, you know, trying to um, safely remove, you know, alcohol from their lives. And community, which is, you know, listen, I, one of the big things that helps keep me sober is, you know, my community of fellow sober friends, Um, you know, and knowing that I'm not alone and here, you know, it's, it's really, really an important thing. And that's why I wrote my book. Um, Because when I was really struggling, um, it was the loneliest place I've ever been Mm -hmm. in my life. And I read, I read other books, mostly by women, because I wanted to hear from people like me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I thought, gosh, if I can just make one person struggling, you know, feel a little bit less alone, whether it's with, you know, alcohol addiction or with anxiety, um, because I, those were two huge secrets I had, I kept in my life. Well, Elizabeth, I'm so confident that you have helped and inspired so many of my listeners today. First off, thank you so much for your transparency, for just telling us exactly what you experienced, because I think that's so important because often people see people like yourself and think, oh, I can't really relate with them. But your story really normalizes that we all struggle with something. So once again, I'm so honored that you were a guest on my show today. 
My pleasure. If my listeners want to find out any more information about you, well, <laughs> I guess they just simply turn on the TV. <laughs> yes. But where would they find more information about you? Um, well, they obviously they can read my book, Between Breaths. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, TV. Um, I also actually have a podcast. I'm on the board of directors for the Partnership to End oh, Addiction. Really? And we have a brand new podcast that I'm hosting that's coming out at the end of October. Oh, that's so, amazing. Um, you can find that as well. And I have a new show that I'll be announcing in a few months. So I'll be, um, there's lots of, lots of stuff going on. So I am so happy for you, Elizabeth. That's, yeah, that's amazing. Thank you. Congratulations. And once again, thank you so much for being such a wonderful, gracious guest today. Thank you for inviting me. It was great talking to you, James. If you or someone you know is struggling with alcohol, please visit joinmonument.com. I also want to thank you, my listener, for tuning in today. Please subscribe to this radio show through whichever portal you join me today. Also, please go to my website where you may sign up for the free weekly recap, watch my YouTube episodes, read the articles I've written specifically for you, and purchase my previous guests' self-help products. If you'd like to work with me, be a guest on or advertise on this show, visit jamesmillerlifeology.com. Be sure to follow me on all social media platforms under the name James Miller Lifeology, except for Twitter, which is James M. Lifeology. Once again, thank you so much for your support, and I'll talk to you soon.